Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 29 through 40. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we're going to start breaking it down. It says, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned and were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, as you can tell from just reading this, there is a lot here tonight. And so I just want to pray that you would uh, be listening to the Lord as He teaches through this passage tonight. But there's a lot we need to cover, so let's just jump right into verse 29. But before we do, I want to say something. I put it in my notes this way. Tonight we continue to look at the Hebrew writer's description of men and women of faith. But before we fall into an attitude of been there, done that, because we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and men and women of faith for quite a while here, I want to remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, which says every word of scripture is what? God breathed. And it's useful for instruction and training and so on. I want you to really think about the fact to keep you from falling into an attitude of, okay, here we are again in chapter 11, looking at men and women of faith. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. And there's a reason why these words are here, and these illustrations are here, and the story of the Red Sea, and Jericho, and Rahab, and so on. And so instead of saying, well, well here, let's just look at another one in, in the book of Hebrews, I want us to have an excited attitude tonight that says, okay, God, why is this here? Why did you list David and Jephthah and Gideon and so on. And I want you to have that kind of an attitude of don't get bogged down at the end of chapter 11. As we bring chapter 11 to a close tonight, don't get bogged down. Get excited because these are here for a reason. And I cannot wait to show you some of the things that God showed me about it. It says in verse 29, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea by faith, but the Egyptians, when they tried, were drowned. I mean, think about this. We're going to read the story, but as you know, the nation of Israel walked through the Red Sea and the walls of water on each side. Yet when the Egyptians did the same thing, they were drowned. I mean, it would appear to us that the Egyptians had the same amount of faith as the the Israelites did, right? I mean, the Israelites had faith and walked through. The Egyptians had faith and began to go on through, chasing after them. So what I want to do is, though, the Scripture here shows that the Israelites were given credited as having faith when they walked through, but the Egyptians weren't. Maybe they had a mean commander. Maybe they had a mean commander. I don't know. Uh, let's take a look and see what the scripture has to say. Go to go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 verses 1 through 31. I'm going to read almost the whole story here because there's a lot in this story that maybe some of us wouldn't hurt us to go back and look at it anyway. 
A lot of us don't probably think of the, the movie with Moses. You know, and, and uh, we picture a lot of what we think of Scripture from that. And I want to warn you against that. There's nothing wrong with watching a movie about it, but you need to have your Bible in your hand and know what the Scriptures, because a lot of stuff in the movies doesn't really line up with Scripture. It never really happened that way. I don't know how many of you remember a few years ago, NBC came out with a movie about Noah's Ark. And if you ever watched it, it would make you sick, because they had Lot coming up to the Ark in a boat, knocking on the side of the boat, saying to the, Noah, let me in. Lot didn't even live at the same time as Noah. It was hundreds of years later. But unfortunately, the movie people have a tendency to get creative. So don't build your theology from the movies. Read the story. And so in chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near Pi-Herahoth, between Migdal and the sea, and there to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharahoth. Opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all, and at daybreak the sea went back uh, to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, 
and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, their servant. Now, if you know the story, they did for then. (laughs) They'll change their minds a few times, but just like we do, unfortunately. But what I want to pull out from this passage is this. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea by faith, but the Egyptians, according to the Scripture here in Hebrews 11, uh, when they tried, they were drowned. What's the difference? They had, their hearts were hardened, definitely. Okay, you're, you're on to something here. He wanted the Israelites to make it through, and not, he didn't want the Egyptians. That's definitely true. But when we're looking at faith versus no faith... Faith in God and they had faith in themselves. Very good. The Israelites had faith in God, and that's why they moved forward. The Israelites had faith in themselves, and that's what... I'm sorry, the Egyptians, thank you, had faith in themselves, and that's what was propelling them, if you will, through the water. And there's three things I want to pull out from this story. The Israelites didn't have a lot of faith. Well, that's where where we're going to go. I want to pull out to you that there's three things from the story I want you to see. All right? Um... This isn't one of them, but it kind of sets up where we're going. Even though the Egyptians did the same thing by going through the water, this miracle was not for them. And they were not going through because of faith in God, as we just talked about. The three things I want to point out are this. Here's the first one. Each one should have faith of our own, coupled with with a personal relationship with God. In other words, God is not some magical force uh, to be trusted in. In other words, the nation of Israel had a relationship with God. And therefore, this miracle was for them. His miracle was for those who had a relationship with Him. It wasn't for those who didn't have a relationship with Him. The best way I can illustrate this to you is put a bookmark here and go to Acts chapter 19. There's a very interesting story in Acts 19, verses 13 through 16. It says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, "Jesus, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Here were some guys trying to use someone else's power, someone else's relationship. They said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we want to use this power too. And the demon says, that's not how it works. You don't have the power. I know Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And so I want you to understand, from the story of the Egyptians and the Israelites going through the Red Sea, the Israelites went through... Just like the Israelites, the Egyptians went through, but the miracle wasn't for them because they did not have a relationship. And God's miracles are for those who have the relationship with Him. You can't rest on someone else's faith. Do you understand? Second thing is this. God is looking for men and women who move forward in faith, even if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed. As you pointed out, Duke, they didn't have a whole lot of faith in our measurement of faith, remember? 
Remember, they, uh, they're crying out saying, we should have died in Egypt. Or why don't you just let us stay in Egypt? We told you not to do this. This is dumb. Look what's going to happen. And Moses is the one who said, go. God said, go, go. And they went. But let's be honest. They didn't go through with tremendous faith. They were not standing there saying, oh, relax everybody, it's all going to be good. They actually feared God after the miracle. And here's the third thing. Sometimes God puts us into situations where we have almost no choice but to trust Him. That's pretty much what He did, is it not? And they didn't have many choices. It was go and hand yourself over to the Egyptians or head out in between these walls of water and trust God. Now, my prayer is that you don't end up in that situation. My prayer is that you trust Him early on. But sometimes when God's trying to get us to a certain point, and He's been telling us over and over, sometimes He has to take away all the other things we've been relying on so that we have no choice but to trust Him. Go ahead. They, they didn't uh, have a choice of going to the Egyptians because there was a wall of fire and smoke. Yeah, well, yeah, but at the same, they, they could have stayed where they were. They could have just stayed and not walked through and taken what happened to them after that. Definitely, they couldn't go through the wall of God, but at the same time they could have just stayed. They were almost forced to go Exactly. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Folks, let me tell you, because remember, when God saved you, He began a project with you. He gave you His Spirit to seal you as His for eternity. And remember, He who began this good work in you will finish it. Those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Keep in mind, once you got saved, God, and we're going to see this when we get to chapter 12 next week, you become a child of God and He becomes your Father, and a loving Father will discipline and shape and mold His children. Once you become His child, He has a purpose in mind to make you what He wants you to be and how to manifest Himself through you. And the longer you resist it, the more He has to turn up the heat, if you will. And sometimes, as He's been challenging us to walk in faith and follow Him in faith, and we keep chickening out, or we keep resting in other things, sometimes He has to take the bank account away. I know when Becky and I were first married, we didn't have any money. Except the $3,000 that Becky had saved up. She had been a good young lady and working at the Neckard's drugstore that was in this area way back, and she had saved up $3,000. And when... Uh, we first were married, we were feeling pretty good because we had $3,000 in the bank. I mean, we... Yeah, well, I ended, up having, I ended up having to have throat surgery and we didn't have any health insurance. And guess what the hospital agreed they would do the surgery for? $3,000. And God began to teach us early, you're going to have to trust me and not put your money in your bank, faith in your bank account. And God will keep doing that over and over in our lives, folks. I, like I shared with you before, I, I, I just recently in the last three to four years of this ministry was leaving the ministry mailbox for checking to see if a check had come in to the ministry or whatever. And, and again, this week there was none and I was feeling down. And I actually said to the Lord, Lord, it only takes a little over 100000 a year just to run this whole ministry. Please don't hear that that all comes to me. It doesn't. But to run the ministry is just a little over 100000 a year with everything included. And I said, Lord, there's some people out there in this world that that's pocket change to them. Wouldn't it be neat if a man would call me up and say, Jim, don't ever worry about money again. I will make sure that the ministry never runs out of money. And I said, Lord, I would feel so much better knowing that I wouldn't have to worry about whether a check came in. Wouldn't it be cool if someone would call and say, don't ever worry about it again. I will personally make sure it ever, never runs out. 
About five minutes later, God spoke so clearly to me. I was still driving, and He said, Jim, I've already made you that promise. Why won't you believe me? Isn't that what the Scripture says? Doesn't He say to us that we'll never lack, we'll never want? Don't worry about money? Because that passage in Hebrews, and you're going to get there, chapter 13 eventually, where He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, is actually tied to money. Did you tell me you were sorry? Honestly, I said... You're right. And Becky can tell you from that moment on, I haven't worried about it. And God has supernaturally blessed the ministry above and beyond since that point when I stopped worrying. But God keeps getting us to these places. And let me tell you, sometimes He has to take away all your other options. You won't have any other idols. So I say to you, There's actually a lot here in this little story. And there's more. I don't have time for it. Dealing with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, though, for those of you that are struggling with that, if you want to go back and later on look at John chapter 12, verses 20 and following, it talks about how the nation of Israel would not believe, therefore God hardened their heart so they could not believe. The hardening of the heart does happen by God. God does come to a point when He says, I'm, my spirit will no longer strive with man. God will come to a place where He will no longer make it possible for people to respond. But always it's after the individuals themselves say no. And if you study the Scriptures, Pharaoh hardened his own heart at the beginning. But at a certain point, God said, okay, you've had your opportunity. From now on, I'm shutting it off and you won't respond properly. And so when he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, we sit there and say, that's not fair. Oh no, read the whole story and you'll see it was plenty fair. But God gave him opportunity, he didn't respond. And so again, you'll see that the nation of Israel would not believe, therefore they could not believe. There's a point where it transfers. And so, just I'll just throw that out. Now, jump to verse 30 in chapter 11. The Jericho story is very similar to the Red Sea story, though. See, the people walked in faith around the city. We're not going to take the time to read the Jericho story tonight. But they were trusting Joshua's hearing from God, not theirs, just like it was with Moses. The nation of Israel hadn't heard from God like Moses did at the Red Sea. They just know Moses stood there and said, we're going this way. And he held his water out of the water, it parted, and they're like, okay, I guess we've got no choice. We're going this way. And the nation of Israel, when they got to Jericho now, they didn't hear from God. Joshua had heard from God. And so Joshua passed it on to the people. Like you said earlier, you know, where were you and you're with God? Well, that's Old Testament. You know, individually now, we all have a personal relationship with God. He will speak to us just like the pillar of fire came onto the tabernacle in the wilderness to show God's presence. If you remember Acts chapter 2, the pillar of fire came into the upper room and divided and came over the heads of all the individual believers in the same way that God signified His Spirit coming to indwell the tabernacle in the Old Testament with the pillar of fire. He signified His Spirit coming to indwell the believers at Pentecost with the pillar of fire above each of their heads. And so... But in this instance, the people of of the nation of Israel are walking around the city in faith. But they hadn't heard from God. Joshua had. But they're trusting the one that God chose to lead them. But here's the difference. Or this is one of the differences. In the Red Sea story, they saw the miraculous parting of the water and they walked through in faith. In this instance, they walked around for seven days before they saw the miraculous. Did they not? And here's what I want you to hear. Sometimes God's going to test your faith for a while before we see His provision. 
Sometimes God is going to test your faith for a while before you see His provision. Why does He do that? What's that? So that you figure it. I'm glad you brought that out. Because see, a lot of people think, so people say, well, so God will find out whether or not I really trust Him. Folks, you don't understand who God is if you still think God doesn't know something. He's not trying to find out what your response is going to be. He already knows everything about you. He knows if you're going to deny Him tomorrow. He knows if you'll die for Him tomorrow. All the days ordained for you, Psalm 139 verse 16 said, were already written in His book before one of them came to be. And you, though, have a responsibility to respond appropriately. You have been given the ability to choose, to say yes or no, to follow in faith. But He already knows all that. What He's trying to do, as Chris just pointed out, is to show you what He already knows. Let me remind you of God in the Garden of Eden when He said to Adam, and Eve, where are you? Did he not know? Of course he did. And then he said, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? Just again, did he not know? Of course. He's getting them to try to acknowledge what he already knows. And sometimes when we have this false attitude about ourselves, like Peter, who said, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison and death for you. Eventually. Eventually. And that was God's answer, actually. He said, actually, for the rooster crows tonight, you're going to die. You know me three times. You know me three times. God knows everything about us. And He puts us in tests, though, not so that He would find out what our response would be, so that we would find out what our response would be. And just like that one I just shared with you, God, in His mercy and His love, showed me that I was still putting more confidence in man than in my Father who had made me those exact same promises. And so, folks... Don't feel bad when you fail a test. Understand that when you fail a test, the test actually was a success. What is the purpose of God testing us? Not to find out if we'll pass, to refine us and to, as Chris said, show us. What he already knows. So, if you are in a time of testing, if you're in a time that your faith is being tested, and you fail, actually, God succeeded. Because you now know what he already knew. Right? Remember when your kids were little and they said, I can dress myself, and you knew they couldn't? You gave them the shirt, the pants, the socks, the undies. You said, knock yourself out. Were you testing them to find out if they could dress themselves? No, you knew. What were you doing? Showing them what you already knew about them. You put them in a test and you let them find out they can't dress themselves. And then because they acknowledge, I'm not ready now, I'm not ready yet, you were then able to take them from where they were and help them get to where they need to be. Correct? Then you seek the help. Yes. You won't seek the help if you don't think you need it. That's All it. these incidents is go right back to giving you glory because when you have those aha moments, it's always give glory to God. That's it. So, folks, what I want you to understand is, is when you really understand your relationship with God and who you are in Christ and that He will finish what He started and that He's not actually measuring whether you're going to pass the test or not and upset that you failed, He actually is lovingly trying to get you somewhere and the failure of the test is a part of Him showing you what He wants you to do. And if we would just relax and acknowledge, you know what? I mess up. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. See, we keep thinking that that's some magical formula. No, no, no. Listen, the more I acknowledge my brokenness to you, 
the more you acknowledge your brokenness to me, the easiest, easier it is for us to move into healing because now we at least acknowledge we need help. But too many of us in church put on the suit and tie on Sunday and do what? Pretend to be something we're not. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. How are you? Fine. God's good all the time. All the time. God's good. We know all the phrases. Yet we walk out of church and we're hurting and we're scared and we're nervous and we're anxious. We put on that face. The sooner we understand that God knows we're messed up and that's where He's best, the easier it'll be for us to look each other in the eye and say, I struggle with that too. I'm a little worried about something right now and I know I'm not supposed to be and I need God's grace. By the way, that's a commercial for you, that, like I told you, to go to the website at Merritt Island and take a look at your kingdom come, your will be done. Because what we looked at on Sunday, it goes right to what we're just talking about, but I won't go there because we're running out of time. All right? Now, let's jump to Rahab in verse 31. It says, The Rahab, the prostitute, is now listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith. How about that? Now, what can she teach us about faith? Well, one thing she can teach us is this. God responds to and rewards faith, not good behavior. I'm going to say that again. God responds to and rewards faith, not good behavior. Too many of us think that God, Jesus died for us to make us better people. He didn't die, to, die for us to make us nice. He died for us that we would be reconciled to Him and then able to work in a relation, living relationship with Him that we could walk with Him in faith. Fearing God is good. Here's another thing Rahab can teach us. Fearing God is good, but faith in God is what he responds to. Now, what I mean by that is this. Did she have a fear of God? Yes. Did the city of Jericho have a fear of God? Yeah, they did. Let me show you. Go to Joshua chapter 2. Go to Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. said, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, go over, to, over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two, who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, Yes, the men came to see me, but I didn't know where they had come from at dusk when it was time to close the city gate the men left i didn't don't know which way they went go up after them quickly you may catch up with them but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof now so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of jordan and as soon as the pursuers had gone out the gate was shut now before the spies lay down for the night she went up on the roof and said to them i know that the lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you we have heard how the lord dried up the water of the red sea for you when you came out of egypt by the way that miracle wasn't just for the nation of israel was it and the, what God did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, when, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed in, because of you. For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now... 
She had fear of God, and so did the rest of the nation, nation of Jericho. But the difference was her fear turned into surrender and faith. And she put her faith and her trust in God. The rest of the nation did what? They feared God, but they armed themselves to fight against God. And so she teaches us that fearing God is good, but faith in God is what God responds to. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just because you fear God doesn't mean you're saved. You may fear God, but you're still going to fight Him. It's responding in faith to the God whom you fear. Alright, and then... What makes her different from the rest of Jericho is she said, God, help. Not, I'll resist you. And there's a lot right there we could spend a lot of time on. But I'm not going to for the sake of time. How much do we need to have that same attitude that says, apart from you, I can do nothing. But much as we know that the Bible doesn't say God helps those who help themselves, many of us still fall into that mindset. How many of you, when trouble comes, your first thought is what you have or haven't done? Correct? Isn't that what happens? Our first thought is, it's because I haven't done something. When it might just be God simply trying to show you something. And so when you think it's something you might have or haven't done, you quickly try to go fix it. And God is looking for people that say, God, help. In verses 30 through 32 through 34, we see listed men and women who not only trusted God in faith, but in doing so, God demonstrated His power through them. Look at verses 32 through 34. He goes on, the Hebrew writer goes on to say, What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, what I want to pull out from this section here is this. And we're going to be, by the way, like the Hebrew writer, not have time to deal with every one of these people in this list. But what he's bringing out is this. In the stories we've just seen, we see God showing His miraculous power through creation, through nature, the Red Sea parting, the, the walls of Jericho falling down. But this group of people... God manifests His power through them in the way in which their weakness was turned to strength. I mean, we hear the name David and we think, that was a powerful man of God, right? But how many of you remember David's beginning? Let's go and look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. said, so The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. I love that. See that? That's that living relationship where God didn't just give him a set of instructions to go do it. He said, I'll get you started. Head in the direction. Bring with you a heifer. Uh, say this. Um, from there on, I'm going to lead you. Boy, I love that. That's Old Testament and God showing His leadership by His Spirit. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. 
Samuel did what the Lord had said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had uh, Shema pass, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sat and had been brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. When Jesse was told by the prophet, gather your sons, and I'm going to anoint them, I'm going to choose one to be the king, and we're going to sacrifice and we're going to cleanse them, Jesse didn't even bring all of his sons. He left one. Because even dad thought, ain't going to be that one. It's got to be the firstborn. Yeah, it's got to be the firstborn. But God chose David. Why? Because he was considered the least. And he could then manifest his power even greater through him. Gideon was listed the same way. Go to Judges chapter 6. <laughs> I don't have time to go through the whole breakdown of how an unfit choice in our eyes Gideon would have been. But in Judges chapter 6, look at verses 11 through 16. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Orphra that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a rind press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> I can picture Gideon going like this. You got the wrong guy. And you don't realize I'm threshing wheat in a wine press because I'm hiding. And keep your voice down. But, sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all His wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Do not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us to the, into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength, listen, you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Oh, by the way, this is a test. This is a test. God says, Gideon, go in the strength you have. And... Rescue Israel. Am I not sending you? Gideon's response was good. He said, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if I now have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. And, and he goes through all those tests. And, but here's the deal. Gideon was offered the opportunity to go and do it in his own strength. And Gideon was wise enough to say, uh-uh, I can't do that. Remember when God told Moses, you just take these people and go? Take these people and go and take them into the promised land? And Moses said, look, if you don't go with us, we're not going. Can't do this without you. 
you have to be the one doing it. But Gideon was the last one we would have picked to lead against the Midianites, but it's the one God chose. Why? Because He wants to manifest Himself through weakness. We sit around beating ourselves up because of our failures. And we think that we're disqualified because of our weakness. You forgot who God is. He actually picks those people so that He gets the credit and He gets the glory. That's why Satan wants to whisper in your ear and say, you're failed. You're not qualified. God can't use you now. It's the exact opposite. Usually, by the way, when you hear Satan talk, flip it exactly, and that's the truth. Let's take one more. Take Samuel. And I'm not going to go there for the sake of time. But in Samuel, if you want to write it down and look at it later on, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1-21. through Remember, Samuel is offered by Hannah to the Lord, and she brings him to the, to the, the temple. Uh, and uh, he works there with, uh, with Eli and his sons. And his sons are extremely wicked. Eli's a horrible dad, and he's not dealing with them. Samuel is laying there, and God hadn't spoken in a while. And that night, God comes and says, Samuel, of course, he thinks Eli's calling him. He runs and says, did you get me? And he said, no, go lay down. And God says, Samuel, and he goes to Eli again and says, did you call me? And he said, no. Third time it happened, and Eli said, now realizes God's probably talking to him. And he said, look, just tell him, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And, oh, by the way, does anybody know what God told Samuel when he finally spoke? Bad news about Eli and his sons. He tells this little boy, you need to go back to the guy that's been raising you and rearing you and tell him that God's going to strike his two sons and himself dead all in the same day. Can you even imagine being little Samuel having to go and say, I don't think you want to hear this. And Eli says, look, you tell me. Tell me what it is. And he told him. Eli's response was, God's God and he has the right to do whatever he wants. And, and, and it did come true. But again, this list back in Hebrews chapter 11, look at it again. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, one we wouldn't have chose. Barak, who was afraid so much that he had to say to Deborah, look, unless you help me out, lady, I ain't doing it. Right? Eh, you know? Samson, Jephthah, by the way, Jephthah is the one who actually made that rash vow. I don't know if you know the story. If you want to go back and look, he's the one that was so... He said to God, the next thing comes out of my tent, I'll sacrifice it to you. And he thought an animal was going to come out, and it was his daughter, and he had to do it. It's a tough story. Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength by God, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. We hear the name David, Samuel. We hear the name uh, Gideon. We hear the name Samson. And we think of powerful people. We've forgotten. They're as messed up and broken as us. We think of Peter and Paul. Folks, have you forgotten? Peter was the guy who not only said, I don't know him, if you have actually been following the story, he had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where he had seen God glorified. Jesus' glory shone through him. Moses and Elijah were on the mountain. God Himself, the Father, spoke in a voice through the cloud and said, this is my son, listen to him. He comes down from the mountain and says, I don't know him. Thank God the Bible shows us this stuff. 
Thank God the Bible shows us that God would still use a David even after his Bathsheba incident in which he not only cheated and on, on your, against Uriah and slept with a lady he wasn't married to and got her pregnant. He then tried to cover it up by getting the guy drunk. And when he wouldn't cover up his sin, he then had him killed. But you know what? David was broken. And David said, I have sinned against you and you alone. And God responds to people who say, help God, my faith is in you. And He's going to put you through all sorts of stuff to show you what He already knows about you. And the sooner you acknowledge it, the better it will be because the more you say, I don't need you, even though you don't realize you're doing it, the more He'll have to get you to that place where you have no other options but to trust Him. But that's not His first choice. The Bible says, humble yourself. Whoever's humbled will be exalted, right? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I look at it this way. You're going to get humbled either way, right? Wouldn't you rather humble yourself than have God humble you? I know that's my prayer. My prayer, my prayer I know that God has gifted me. I know that God has, has done wonderful things in my life and I live the blessed life. I also know the struggles that I have as a human. I know that my flesh battles against me daily. I don't want anybody sitting here looking at me thinking, well, Jim, he's just more spiritual than me. Uh-uh. Folks, look at me. I struggle against the flesh on a daily basis. And my prayer has been, Lord, You know where my life will go. If I am ever going to be of a, of a shame or an embarrassment to You or the kingdom, kill me before it happens. Not, oh, that would never happen to me. No, I know it could. And because of that, my prayer is, Lord, keep me from the evil one. Keep me from the evil one. But if you know that I'm going to bring disgrace to the kingdom, I don't want that to happen. And you take me home before it does. Now, if I die tomorrow, don't think that it's because you thought that I was going to be a horrible person. It could be that, it could be that God's going to answer my prayer, that He just come get me. But I want you to understand, the sooner you get past this unfortunate attitude we have in the church today of those who are better than others, And the sooner you just take the low road and say, Lord, I need you, and stay there, the sooner He's able to move you to what He wants you to be and He can manifest Himself through your weakness. We see weakness as bad. God sees weakness as good. What did Paul say? I had this weakness in my flesh, this thorn in my flesh, this torment of Satan to torment me, messenger of Satan to torment me. I prayed three times that God would take it away. What happens? My grace is sufficient. And then Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. I'm just going to embrace what... I'm weak. We don't know what it is. And God intentionally didn't tell us what Paul's thorn is. We could sit around and argue about it. But you know what? God didn't tell us for a reason. But we know this much. Whatever it was, Paul said, I'm going to embrace it now and just acknowledge that's who I am. That's what I've got. And I'm just going to embrace it because God's using it for His glory. Now... I gotta ask you a quick question though. By the way, those of you looking at your watch, we started late, so I know what time we have to go, so. Why is Samson on this list? I mean, listen. Very good, because of the end. Samson did much of what he did in his own strength. Yes, he was using the gifts of God and the strength God had provided, but if you study Samson's life, 
Even though he was faithful to keep the Nazarite vow until Delilah talked him out of it. Much of what Samson did was in his own power. and He was very brazen. But it was at the end of Samson's life that he humbled himself. He, oh, he had been humbled. And he prayed that last time as they put his arms on the pillars. God, would you do it? Would you give me that strength one more time? And the Bible says that he actually killed more Philistines in that last event than in all his life. The reason why Samson's on the list? Listen, let me read to you what I wrote, read to you about Rahab. God responds to and rewards faith, not good behavior. Now, does God care about how we behave? Yeah, as every parent would, but He'll take care of that. We've been in the church too much trying to measure everybody's behavior, trying to make them all good people. I think that's God's job, is it? Isn't it? I mean, if you were to try to tell my kids how to behave, I would probably say, thank you, but that's my job, right? As much as you would say the same thing if someone tried to tell your kids how to behave, would you not? Yet we go around telling everybody else how to behave. Yeah, that's true. That is definitely true. All right, let's go to verses 35 through 40. I want you to look at the contrast in this list. We go from women receiving their dead back to life, yaha, yahoo, good news, to others being tortured, sawn in two, and put to death by the sword. And they're all on the same list. Women received their dead back to life, dead raised back to life again. Others were tortured, refused to be relieved, that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword, and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world wasn't even worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Now we'll get to verses 39 and 40 in a sec. I wrote down here, we like the stories of faith that are rewarded here. We like those. We like the Red Sea and the Jericho stories. Because we get to see God come through then. Um, But are we willing to live by faith in a God who might not bring the healing or the miracle in our lifetime? Are we willing to have faith in Him even if it doesn't happen? We've been talking about it. Exactly. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't receive what was promised. Go with me to the book of Habakkuk. Look at chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. My prayer is that your prayer is the same as Habakkuk's at the end of chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. Now, to set you all up again to remind you, you've heard me talk about this a little bit. Uh, Habakkuk cries out to God and says, The righteous are suffering, the wicked are prospering. I don't think you're paying attention. God says, I am. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Babylonians to take the nation of Israel captive. Habakkuk says, Hang on for a second. That doesn't make sense. I just said, The righteous are suffering, the wicked are prospering. And your answer is to have a more wicked nation prosper even more by taking us captive. And the righteous people suffer even more by going into captivity. God answers him and says, oh, don't worry, one day I'm going to get the Babylonians. But it won't happen for a while. And this is his response in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines... 
Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. In other words, Habakkuk says, even though everything falls apart and I don't see it, I'm sticking with you, God. And folks, let me just tell you, and I'm going to say this to you as an encouragement and a warning. It's easy to be people who have faith when they see God come through. The people that have faith when they never may never see God in this life come through are the ones that it's hard. John the Baptist was sitting in prison and he asked his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? He got a little bit low, did he not? Jesus said something in John, Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, that I want you to hear as the forgotten beatitude. We can list all the beatitudes in Matthew 5, but there's a forgotten beatitude in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. Jesus said, Blessed are those who don't fall away on account of me. I'm going to rephrase it. Jesus said, Blessed are those who don't fall away on account of how I run my world. What happened to John in prison? He got his head cut off. Well, why was he in prison? He spoke the truth. He told Herod, you're not supposed to be having your brother's wife. Got thrown in prison for it. And while he's in prison, he's discouraged. Questions whether or not Jesus is even the one. Jesus, lovingly, by the way, sends word back and tell, it says, you go tell John everything's right on schedule. And then he turns to the crowd and says, you, I'm sure John sounded a little wishy-washy to you right now because uh, he was teaching a crowd when his disciples came up and asked. And Jesus turned to the crowd and said, when you went out into the wilderness, who would you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? No, you went out to see a prophet. And I'm telling you, more than a prophet. And then he said something about John, which is pretty amazing. He said, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. When John the Baptist said his lowest thing he ever said about Jesus, Jesus said the greatest thing he ever said about John. He just said, you go back and tell John everything's right on schedule. Oh, and by the way, then John lost his head. And does anybody know, and I'll get right to you, Allison, does anybody know what caused John to lose his head? A little girl was dancing for the king and his buddies. And the king was so pleased, he said, you know what, girl? I'll give you anything you want right now up to the half of my kingdom. Well, she's little. She doesn't know. That's a big offer. What do I want? She runs in and gets her mama. Says, Mommy, what do you think I ought to get, ask for? And she's the one who was still mad at John the Baptist for saying she shouldn't be married to him. And she said, you don't tell him that you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He was still afraid of John the Baptist. He still was afraid of John the Baptist. But now because he made this vow in front of all these guys, he had to keep it. And John the Baptist lost his head because a little girl danced and a king made her... That would make us say, God, wait, no, come on. That makes no sense. How in the world can a sovereign God let all that happen? Blessed are those who don't fall away on account of how God runs His world. See, the Bible says in the parable of the soils that some will spring up and look like they have real salvation. But when trouble comes, because they have no root, they fall away. Folks, it's easy to sit here, and I'm going to get to you, Allison, I haven't forgotten. It's easy to sit here and look at Daniel and then Lion's Den and how he was spared. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego listed, by the way, those who quenched the fury of flames and how they escaped. It's easy to read about women who received their dead back to life, but what about those who were tortured and refused to be released? What about those who were sawn in two, who were put to death by the sword? I'm telling you, real faith, you may see God come through in this life, or you may not. I think uh, Hananiah, Azrael, and uh, Meshiel gives us the example when they told uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't, he's able to do it. We don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. Yep. He's able to do it, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to buy that. That's it. That's why Habakkuk says, even if it doesn't work, or I don't see it come through, I'm staying with you. Allison. Jesus knew the heart of John the Baptist. His flesh was what was crying out. It sure was. In disbelief. Yes. His spirit knew truth. Exactly. Folks, God knows your heart. That's You just got to rest in Him. Now, in the time we have left, I need to deal with verses 39 and 40. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, we don't have time to even break this down as much as I want to, but I want to quickly say this, that God had planned something better for us is a bad translation. That's what the NIV has. That's really not the best translation. All right, The Greek's kind of tricky, but a better way or another way to say this is to say, with us in mind, God had made a better plan. And even that's still a little bit cloudy. In other words, what God is saying, what, what the Hebrew writer is saying is this, is God in His good providence reserved the fulfilling of the messianic promises of Jesus until we could share them. Alright, I'm going to say that again. What he says is this, God in His good providence reserved the fulfilling of the messianic promises of Jesus until we could share them. Remember, who is the Hebrew writer writing to? Jews. Jews who had come to faith in Christ. I'm sure there was a Gentile or two in the mix who probably was reading this letter. But he was speaking to Jewish people. And what he was saying to them was, all these men and women of faith, Jewish women of faith and men of faith, Hebrews, who have been looking forward to the promise that had been given to Abraham and was to be fulfilled, aren't you glad that he waited until our time? We're now, as Jewish Christians... Enjoying, he says, the benefit and the the promises, the fulfillment of what it is. We've seen the Messiah come. If they waited in faith, not receiving what we've gotten to see and experience, aren't we? Shouldn't we not be able to wait a little bit if we're suffering the loss of our property and some of the persecution we're going through right now? If let me just put it to you this way, Christians in America. If our brothers and sisters around the world are being put to death for what we're doing right now in air-conditioned comfort, should we not trust God in faith if He chooses to have the American economy go bad? Kind of pales in comparison, doesn't it? I mean, we might not get to eat out once as much this week. I mean, that's one of the things that surprised me. Everybody's whining about the economy. Have you tried to get a parking space at a restaurant lately? (laughs) Folks, what the Bible, the Hebrew writer is saying to the Jewish Christians and what God is saying to us is this. Keep moving forward in faith, whether you see it or not. 
Do you need a lot of faith? No. You just need to move forward and need to trust Him. Sometimes He'll get you to the point that you have no choice. Hopefully you're not there. But if you are, trust Him. But what if it doesn't work? Who said it was going to work? We're guaranteed that in no. life you will have trouble. Yep. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the day that Jesus comes and gathers all those who are His who have trusted Him in faith. And uh, I want to close with some prayer. Father, I thank You for the fact that tonight I believe You have continued what You've been doing in this study and reminding us more and more of who You are and what the whole of Scripture says about what it means to walk in faith. Lord, too many of us uh, over the years have, and a lot of preachers unfortunately have taken uh, the stories of the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho and we act like that's the only way You do things when people trust You. And there are the health and the wealth preachers out there that will take those passages and make it look like if we trust You in faith, it will all work out in this life. And Your Word does not teach that. Your word shows so clearly here in the book of Hebrews that there were those who didn't get to see it in this life. They were sawn in two. Now, it doesn't say that they didn't experience your presence and your glory and your grace and that you didn't give them what they needed to get through it. But Lord, we didn't see them become healthy, wealthy. So Lord, tonight, you know who's here. You know who's listening online. And you know how we need to hear these words tonight. And I pray your spirit will touch our hearts in such a way that we would be men and women of faith. And that we would trust you. Thank you that people like Samson and Rahab are in this list. And forgive us for ever thinking that David was always the David we see him as now. Forgive us for thinking that Samuel was always powerful Samuel. He was a little boy just like we have been. And Lord, thank you for the story of Gideon. Who more than once kept saying, is it really you? And whatever way we need your touch to encourage us and to move us into that area of continual faith and you maturing us into your likeness, Jesus, we yield to you tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.